Welcome to Tales from the Quarter, a podcast which delves into the social history of the Jewellery Quarter in Birmingham. My name is Kate O'Connor and I'll be taking you through some of the amazing stories from people who have worked in the area that was once known as the Workshop of the World. In this episode, we'll introduce some of the people who have worked in the traditional trades of the Jewellery Quarter. They will discuss their connections to the buildings and share some of their thoughts about how the area has changed. We start with Elaine Wilson. She was born on Icknield Port Road in the late 1950s in an area which borders the jewellery quarter. Her family were involved in the jewellery trade. She grew up with it. Elaine begins by telling us about the main changes she has seen and about her strong family connections to the area. I was born round here in Ignor Port Road, but we ended up in Ground Street, which is just down there. And it was a slum area then. It, there was just slums, you know, being knocked down, wasn't there? And factories being built up. Yeah, there was eight of us. My three brothers went into tool making. My dad got them into that. I think, yeah, we all went into the trade, the whole family. I can't name Alan or Graham, but I know Tony started his apprenticeship in Fatterini's where I work. I know Valerie worked at Box Pads, and I think June started there, but went into Enamlin at Fatterini's again. And Susan and Valerie, both in Bullpits. Our Debbie worked for Anastasia and Wilson, which is in Kenyon, was in Kenyon Street. And our dad, he was all over the shop, really, you know, workshops. And he started off for himself polishing, but he worked, He polished his whole life. You know, he had the cow gown on and a hat. I can see him now. My uncle as well, Uncle Bill. And Uncle Donald, come to think of it, yeah. And Johnny, which is a cousin, and my cousin's here with me now, so big family thing. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, families made up a large section of the population who lived in the jewellery quarter. Many of the poorer families lived in back-to-back houses, a form of terraced housing which was built around a shared courtyard. They were very overcrowded, often with poor sanitation, And in 1875, the Public Health Act prohibited any more being built. Trade directories record that jewellery and metalworking trades were being conducted from the back-to-backs, sometimes from the houses themselves, and in some cases, workshops were built in the backyards. This combined living and working arrangement was common in the area, particularly amongst the smaller, self-employed individuals. Examples of buildings which had a residential space, as well as an office and workshops, can be seen in the area. There were many purpose-built factories too, which were larger in scale. One example is Victoria Works, dealing in the mass production of steel pen nibs and with a clear division of labour in place. Built in 1840, it was located just round the corner from Hills Buildings on Victoria Street, which were back-to-back houses. This stark contrast in scale from one building to the next is a theme which runs throughout the area's architecture. Tony Evans explains how his grandfather, 
Jenkin William Evans moved into a house in Albion Street in the late 1800s and expanded his business at the turn of the century. Jenkin initially rented the house at number 54 and lived there. Uh, and in 1884, he married Louisa and raised all the three children there until the year 1900. And a lot happened in 1900 or thereabouts because the landlord died. And the landlord owned a block of four houses, 54, 55, 56 and 57. But the landlord's will decreed that the property be sold and the money distributed as he wanted in his will to his family. So somehow, and I don't know quite how, Jenkin managed to borrow enough money to buy the whole block of four terraced houses. But once he got the ownership of those, uh, he was able then to knock down the intervening walls of the, through the yards and, and at the back, and he was able to expand his business sideways across the gardens of the, what had been the other houses. Uh, they already had workshops built on those in the gardens, but he was able to utilise those, and he particularly expand his stamp shop with the big heavy, heavy stamps to make bigger and bigger articles. But then he, uh, the First World War came along, and uh, he joined the Royal Naval Air Service. And um, at the end of in 1918, the Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps were combined, uh, and he, so he came out in an RAF uniform, but 1919 probably. And um, so then he went and came back into the business. His older brother had been taken into partnership with, uh, with Jenkin in 1909, but when my father came out in 1919, they formed a limited company with shares and uh, so my father and his brother became directors with their, with their father uh, of with the J.W. Evans and Sons Limited. In 1945, we'd bought the building next to, at 52 Albion Street, and uh, it had always been let. About 1980, we uh, took back a building next door, um, and so we had a much more decent existence, if you like, than, uh, from that point on. It was much better you know, for running the business altogether. Another family firm who have made the core to their home is Deakin and Francis. Famous for their luxury cufflinks, Deakin and Francis are based on Regent Place in a building which originated in the early 1800s as a pair of townhouses. Around 1905, the building went through a radical phase of alteration with new workshops built on the back and office space incorporated into the main building. Henry Deakin is one of the company's directors. He explains how over the years the company has tried to retain the building's historical features as well as moving with the times. Every time I walk up the steps from the streets, the steps are sort of slightly worn away and you do think, God, this is extraordinary. You know, 200 years of Deakins wandering up and down these steps. Actually, just before I was born is when the major changes did actually happen to the building. But um, the manufacturing areas haven't changed the office hasn't changed, but we have come up to the 21st century. You know, we, when I arrived, we were working on sort of um, architects' desks, uh, sort of very high stools and desks. And I'm sure health and safety would have a field day if you ask people to work on uh, at the, the non-ergonomic levels that, that we were working on in those days. But we haven't changed. Any security has been up to a huge amount. But it, generally, the building is is what it is. It is not a purpose-built factory. It is hopeless as a jewellery factory. It's damp. It's I'm sure the roof leaks. It's on too many levels. That every you know, if you built a factory today, you would never build one like this. But it's fantastic, and it's home, and it has been home to the factory, to the company always. And quite regularly, developers come along and say, you know, we'll give you whatever for the building, um, and we'll set you up in a purpose-built. Well, that's not, that's not us. That's not what we want. We're not looking to be time efficient. 
we like the way it works here and it works and you you know this is a family business and that's how we run it um it's it's a big building it's a you know it's too big for us currently um and we've got units throughout which have been derelict for quite a long time and and one project um i started a couple of years ago was clearing these units out and um it's amazing how much sort of we can collect over 200 years clearing them out and putting nice companies who um, I consider are on brand with Deacon and Francis into the building. One of the companies which started life in a Deacon and Francis workshop space was Regent Silversmiths, started by Andrew McGowan and James Butler. As Andrew explains, when the business got bigger, they needed more space. We'd been looking around at workshops and there wasn't a lot about at that time that we could afford. And I guess the first workshop we had was only 20 by 15, something like that. So it wasn't a very big workshop, but we managed to squeeze everything in there somehow. It was just in the right place. It was nice. It was at the back of a building, so it was quite secure. We could have access to it any time we liked. Some of the other workshops we could only access during office hours while other companies were there. So this meant we could work evenings and weekends and and put the hours in. And those first couple of years when Jim was still working at Edward Jones, I sort of took over the responsibility for running Regent Silversmiths because I'd have to accept the orders and do all the invoicing. And that carried on throughout however many years Regent Silversmiths traded as Regent Silversmiths. I always looked after the business side of it as well as doing making up and finishing and wrapping and packing. And Jim Jim is a very good silversmith. They were quite clearly defined roles, though. Jim had no desire to be involved with customers and paperwork and VAT returns and things like that. <laughs> uh, Jim was happy making and um, working at the bench. And that was fine. The, the, the partnership worked fine. We'd been at Deacon & Francis 10 years, um, quite a long time. And by this time, we had now taken over extra workshops because we had a spinner and a polisher. And so I think the annual rent was about £6,000 a year at that point. And we thought that if we saw an appropriate building, rather than paying rent, you know, we'd get a mortgage and, and buy, a, buy a property. And then the building here at 52 Frederick Street came on the market. It was very run down. It was owned at that time by a company who imported a lot of brass and copperware and um, we put an offer in on it £80,000 the offer was refused, it was sold to somebody else but they couldn't get the planning permission on it that they wanted, they wanted to add another story to make it viable for offices they wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed to do that so it came back on the market so we put our offer in again and, uh, and we got it you know it is when you move into your first house when you leave home, yeah. Oh, you're sort of elated, aren't you? It's like buying your first house. Just the same, only better, yeah. When you've worked in the trade for um, nearly 30 years and then you've, then you've got your own building, you can imagine. Oh, yes, it's on the corner as well, and, uh, yes. Nice building. I mean, it's built in 1885. No, no. It's been empty for a while. It was a bit of a state, Boarded up. The bottom floor hadn't been used since the war. It was dark, no electric, nothing. So we had to apply for a grant off Birmingham Council to refurbish it. 
It cost £30,000 to refurbish, and they gave us half that. But it took two years before we moved in. The builder was there for six months. We had to get planning permission, get the grants. But they made a very good job of it, very nice. The previous years, they were, they were giving grants to get all the roofs done. The mother roof had been done four years earlier. I'd taken the chimneys off and did new roofs. But that's all I did. So, there's... so I mean, these grants were going and, uh, and we, uh, we got one. It took time. Kept going around every day to see how the building was getting on. Four ceilings were coming down. Oh, what a mess. You, you get the hardboard off from the 1960s. Underneath that, there was a Tongan groove wood in dark dark green from the 1920s so get that off and then you come to the Victorian wallpaper so when you've got everything off the rooms are twice as big and the four ceilings came down so the ceilings were higher and downstairs we, we divided downstairs off into um, into four rooms and then so we couldn't have people in and, and let those four rooms downstairs and we used the upstairs, front room is the office, the big workshop and the machine shop. James and Andrew rent their workshop space to independent makers, much like Deacon and Francis had done with them. They remain passionate about keeping it affordable and encouraging new talent and ideas into the quarter. Kevin Gray is one of the tenants. He's a qualified silversmith and a designer maker creating beautiful sculptural artworks out of silver. Kevin has exhibited his work internationally, including at the London-based Saatchi Gallery, and, like his peers at Regent Silversmiths, he has won numerous awards. He believes that being based in the jewellery quarter and having everything he needs on his doorstep is key to the quality of his work. The jewellery quarter is a, is a, it's a great place. I suppose in terms of ease, working ease, I can pick people's brains because, you know, you don't know everything. And I can ask someone. It might not be the right answer, but, you know, you can always ask someone and that might lead on to something else. Or uh, I can say to Andy, who's the best person for this in the quarter? They'll just, they'll just tell me. And uh, I can go and see them. I can pop out and get any tool I want. And drop of a hat. You know, I, I know silversmiths who live in the middle of Scotland or the middle of Wales. And they've got a plan so far in advance, they can't just walk out and, and if I run out of emery cloth, I can just go and get some now. Or some saw blades or silver. Uh, you know, my sil- silver's delivered here by the bullion dealers. Ring them up in the morning, it's brought to me at 12 o'clock. So there's, there's the ease of that. And I just like the history of the place. I'd had enough of working in a factory for 25 years. I just had enough of it. I thought, what can I do? And I was just racking my brains. And then my wife saw a nighttime course in silversmithing at the School of Jewellery. I thought, well, I'll give that a go. The School of Jewellery is one of the most well-known buildings in the quarter. You might have seen it on TV. It recently hosted All That Glitters, a competition to find the next big name in jewellery. Based on Victoria Street, it has played a key role in teaching traditional craft, professional practice and the technical skills needed by jewellers and silversmiths alike, which have been exported around the world since it opened in 1890. 
former jewellers workshop was taken over by Birmingham and Jewellery Silversmith Association and opened as a school in 1890. The building itself has been extended twice since then a testament to the success of an institution which has educated generations of silversmiths and jewellers. Les Curtis started at the school as a student, eventually becoming a technician and then a tutor. Les's relationship with the School of Jewellery has lasted over 40 years. He describes how the building operated over a number of floors in the 1960s and 70s. It was old and it was mucky um, and the floors were sort of wood. It was a difficult building to keep clean because there would be dust over various bits and pieces of equipment and although we had cleaners. And it was very much a sort of a... Well, it was built in Victorian times and there were jewellers' benches right the way down the walls in some, uh, some workshops and then... In the basement there was the heavy equipment uh, and there was more space around that. There was a tool room where there were lathes and presses and things and a milling machine. Narrow corridors. Light wasn't particularly good, although it was okay. Uh, Then we had rooms four and five where we were taught design and you could make the two rooms into one for a big class. Yeah, I, I, can see, I can see it in my mind's eye. I, I can walk around the building and in the basement there was the casting room, which later on I would be responsible for, and the plating lab. And on the top floor you could go out onto the roof in those days and you could sit out there in, in the sun and enjoy the, uh, enjoy the tea breaks and lunch times that way. The variety of skills and different courses taught at the School of Jewellery has for a long time attracted students from around the world and continues to do so. Anna Lorenz had completed courses in gemology and had been an apprentice goldsmith in her native Germany before coming to Birmingham to study in the quarter. She explains how she came to stay in Birmingham. I was looking for a university or for a school where I could develop and I came across quite a few schools but the one that somehow seemed to stand out most was the School of Jewelry in Birmingham. And I applied to Birmingham with the portfolio ahead and I got accepted to it. Uh, when students are finished, they have the opportunity to take part in New Designers. And I managed to take part and my work was picked up. There were two aspects. There was a a scheme, a pilot scheme, which was called a graduate apprenticeship scheme, which I got involved in. And prior to finishing, a design of mine was taken up by the school or by the Birmingham City Council. So my design was selected and Regent Silversmiths made it. So I had to come from the school over to Regent Silversmiths and discuss the design and I would come and see how the making was going because that was very exciting. And I started to obviously then make contact with Regent Silversmith. So when I finished and I needed to keep making, I came here to ask if I could actually use the workshop here and uh, they allowed me to and I'm still here. (laughs) That wasn't planned. Those who have worked in the area for a long time have witnessed numerous changes to the landscape and have seen businesses come and go. As we've settled into the 21st century, 
There is a feeling from some of our interviewees that the identity of the jewellery quarter is at risk and the industry is being replaced by residential properties and other kinds of businesses. The quarter is, is really changing a lot and change very often is for the better, I think. As long as Birmingham City Council preserves really the businesses as much as possible or keeps the rates of, of certain buildings down that makes actually can still afford to be there. I think uh, for me that would be really important. E.L. Chaplin were metal finishers who were based on Frederick Street. The company specialised in gold and silver plating items such as watches, medals and car badges. They repaired the famous Ryder Cup a signifier of the quality of their work and their good reputation in the industry. However, their business was eventually impacted by the rise in the outsourcing of work to overseas manufacturers. And in 2005, due to a decline in business, they were forced to close. Martin Chaplin describes how he felt at the time and how his views have changed since they closed. At the time, I tried to resist the residential properties being built in the jury quarter, but now uh, I support it because the fact is that um, we we can't compete with Asia too cheap. Um, So it's good to see that the jury quarter is being cared for and is being, I think, pretty sympathetically redeveloped. It's got lots of interesting bars and restaurants. In fact, our our shop in Frederick Street is now a Turkish restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, and I've been in there and had a meal, which was quite spooky, really. For those still working in the area, they remain hopeful that support from the City Council and other local organisations will help to retain the quarter's traditional industries. Time will tell whether it survives as a manufacturing centre whilst adapting to the changes the 21st century brings. I get the sense at the moment that a lot is sold off and businesses are really closing, so I wonder if there will be much of the quarter left, really, in in 20 years' time. Hopefully there will, hopefully, because I think it's a very unique place and uh, if there's a certain amount of change, as said, that's okay. but if it's really... If it doesn't preserve the character, then it's quite sad, I think, because it has such a historic value. I think the jury court is a bit of an exception. You know, city centres have changed and, and, you know, big buildings come up and go down and bigger ones go up again. The, the council are very cautious about the jury court and they want to keep it to what it is, and, and which is fantastic. And I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, we are not the centre of Birmingham, but within 10 minutes you're, you're right in the centre of Birmingham. Um, the Jury Quarter is a, a real gem in, in my view and the buildings are wonderful. The, the, some of the historic buildings and the architecture is absolutely stunning and I think, yes, we're going to have to have some modern buildings put up and there's a big development going on next door to us and that will change the look and the feel of, of this. But as long as there are buildings like ours, buildings like, um, you know, that when you go down Warstone Lane, some of these fabulous buildings you've got Thomas Fatterini across the road really lovely old buildings you will keep the sort of the heart and soul of the jewellery quarter here whether it's always going to be a manufacturing hub for jewellery who would ever know but I do think I think the jewellery quarter is a lovely a lovely place and it is 
it's a real little village. I think this is going to become a really luxury area of Birmingham. As long as the heritage keeps up, it will, it, it will pull through to be an even nicer area than it is now. The People's Archive is an oral history project which explores the past and present experiences of those who have worked and lived in the Jewellery Quarter. Tales from the Quarter is produced by Siobhan Stevenson on behalf of the Jewellery Quarter Townscape Heritage Project, which is generously supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund.